I have a tendency to agonize, just generally. And uh, one of the things for preachers is to think really hard about one-off sermons and what does this group of people need to hear at this time? And so to take that out of the equation entirely, I decided a little while ago that I would just preach the next psalm, whatever that would be. And I was sharing with uh, Pastor Brandon earlier this week that I've never been disappointed, that the Lord has always met us in his word. And so I'm really grateful for that this morning. Uh, But do know that as I studied this passage and thought through this, uh, names and faces come to mind. Uh, Situations in my life, in my church, and uh, friends here that I know well. And so not only do I trust on faith that God's going to meet us here, but I have already um, seen how he's ministered to my soul as I think about this. So I'm excited for that today. Let me pray for us as we begin. Lord Jesus. You really are our only hope. You are the one who uh, stands in wait for us as we come to your word. You're the one who stands in wait for us as we turn to you in prayer, the one who stands in wait for us someday when we make our way to the grave. You are our only hope in life and in death, Um, and you will gather all your children together. We thank you. Father, we praise you as the, the one who sent the son for us out of your great love, who made him an acceptable sacrifice so that we could come into your presence. Holy Spirit, we thank you for inspiring this psalm and pray that you will meet us now and work uh, in spite of me and through this message. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? That is the question of the sixth psalm. Uh, And it might be a question you've found yourself asking at some point in your life, maybe even recently. I certainly have. Uh, I don't know what it was like around Liberty. I know some of you all live very nearby and others are spread out through the Northland, but uh, there were some power outages. Maybe you heard about this, some some, some weather. Uh, I suspect most of you have heard about this. Well, there was uh, a little bit of a dress rehearsal in my house uh, because last week or the week before, a squirrel blew up a transformer in my neighbor's yard. And so we were without power for a little while, and that was really concerning for us. See, we've got these two kids, these twin boys who are going to turn a year old next month. They were born three months prematurely. One of them has special needs, and I was just starting to count all of the things that run on energy, you know, electricity of some kinds. Like, we got this suction machine to help us clear his airway, and then he has this feeding pump, and then he has this oxygen concentrator, and uh, there's just a, a lot of things that could easily go wrong. That quickly, one squirrel. Fortunately, our utility company got things solved very quickly. We were really grateful. It was like an hour or or maybe a couple of hours. But it started me thinking, man, if this happens again and it lasts a while, man, I probably should get a generator. Yeah, I'll do that sometime. And then this past week, we were without power, not just for like a day. Our house was like the last 5% of houses to get power. And so I bought a generator. Um... And we were really grateful for the Lord's provision there, church family coming and and bringing us food that wouldn't go bad and that sort of thing. We were really grateful for that. But it was really easy during that time, and maybe you just recently felt a similar thing, to ask, how long is this going to be again? (laughs) Is this going to be like half an hour? Is this going to be like three days? Is this going to be like three weeks? And the answer to that question, how long, drastically adjusts our attitude, our perspective, and the actions that we plan to take, right? Like if this is going to be an hour, we can probably just chill. Like, we got battery power, things will be okay. This is going to be a couple of days, go by the generator. If this is going to be weeks or months, think about those 
hit with massive hurricanes and who lose everything that they knew, all the things that they relied on for weeks on end. How long? Well, if there is a a simple way to put the message of the sixth psalm, I think one way to do it would be suffering saints wait on God. Suffering saints wait on God. And maybe you get that, you've bought into that, you believe that, but at some point, when it's weeks on end, months on end, years on end, for you to be vindicated, your name to be vindicated, for this distress, this pain, this illness to clear, for that person, those people to get better, to stop hurting you, to stop sinning against you, to grow like they should for you, to stop hurting people, stop sinning against others, to grow like you should. Even suffering saints will eventually ask the question, how long? Yes, suffering saints wait on God, but it doesn't mean that we don't ever ask, how long? And the irony of that question and the difficulty of that question is that it's a question that only God can answer. When you're asking how long, O oh Lord, it means that you had nowhere else to go for that answer. And an even deeper irony of that question is that it's a question that God can't and hasn't, or uh, at least shouldn't, doesn't, answer with a time frame. He, he can, of course, he knows. It's not a mystery to him, and yet it's a mystery to us. It's never once been revealed to us with any kind of time specificity. How long until I'm vindicated? How long until they stop sinning against me? How long until this burden disappears? But it doesn't mean that there is no answer. And of course, if you've been following Jesus for any length of time, you know that his answer is always better than the one you were looking for. And in Psalm 6, we see three facets of that answer. Now, they're not the only ones in all of Scripture, but we do see three facets of that answer. Suffering saints wait on God, and when we ask how long, one facet of the answer is simply that suffering saints wait on God as long as he wants. Suffering saints wait on God as long as he wants. This was a song. The uh, script over the verses here, you know, these verses and these chapter divisions and these sorts of things are are uh, additions to help us, but verse zero says, to the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, probably some kind of musical term, a psalm of David. So what can we know about what we're about to read? Well, we can know that whatever David went through here and the anguish that he expressed, he eventually ordered. He, he took what he felt, what he experienced, and he turned it into something with structure and purpose and not just for himself, but for God's people to worship God with. Isn't that amazing? Some of you probably know that the book of Lamentations is this short book that really just outlines wave after wave after wave of pain and struggle and difficulty from the Lord. The little hope at the end. And it's an acrostic poem. Someone took all of this pain and decided to order it and praise the Lord. Well, that's what David has done here. And, and we don't know exactly what the situation is. Different readers of scripture will try to answer that in different ways. And the truth is that we just simply cannot know. 
But some things that we know about David, if you know anything about King David in the Bible, then you probably could come up with a few different labels for him. He was a, a great king who saw excellent military victories. He was a man after God's own heart. He was uh, an undignified worshiper. He was uh, an adulterer or worse. He was something of a failure as a father. He was persecuted by people he loved and who should have been loving him. First, his predecessor, King Saul, who he'd only ever served, and then his son, Absalom, who sought his throne. David saw victory, but he also saw much distress and defeat, and he asked himself, how long is this going to go on? But he didn't just ask himself, he asked the Lord, how long? It's a blessing to us that he did and that the Spirit inspired him to give us these thoughts, these facets of an answer. Suffering saints wait on God as long as he wants. That's the first thing that David gives us here and that the Lord gives us in this psalm. It says, O Lord, he doesn't go anywhere else first, but to the Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing, wasting away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. I don't know that I've ever felt that kind of pain or grief. I've felt deep pain and grief. But his bones hurt. Some people would say that maybe he was actually sick, that he had some sort of illness that made him weak. It seems like there are people involved who are at least slandering him, if not pursuing his life. It could be that they're saying, David, you see this illness? That means God doesn't love you. That means God hasn't chosen you. That means you're not a faithful servant. Or it could be that his illness is simply this pursuit, these enemies. They seek his life or at least his reputation, and it's making him sick. Sure, you've probably felt something like that. I know I have. But it's not just his body. Whether it's his body first and then his soul or his soul first and then his body, it's an entire package burden. My soul also is greatly troubled, verse 3 says. But you, O oh Lord, how long? See, he'll talk about his enemies, these workers of evil. He'll talk about his, his illness and his woes and his difficulties and his grief. But in these first three verses, he is laser focused on just one person, God. Because he knows whatever the earthly cause of this difficulty may be, there is only one person who determines how long it lasts, ultimately. Suffering saints will wait on God as long as God wants. And of course, this doesn't have to mean just a passive reception of pain. Like grin and bear it, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Or even worse, this isn't as bad as you really think. Look at people around the world and how much they're suffering. Of course, that kind of perspective can help us. But his bones are troubled. He's languishing. His soul is deeply disturbed. But he has to wait. Because suffering saints wait on God. Doesn't mean they don't ask how long. It doesn't mean they don't pray. That's exactly what David has done here. He is imploring the Lord, please, Lord, don't let this be the end of me. Let this darkness lift eventually. Instead of rebuking me, instead of disciplining me, 
Maybe that's what he was doing in that moment, or maybe that's a future thing that David wants to avoid. Lord, don't let this result eventually in my ultimate discipline and destruction. Regardless, he has the gall to ask, be gracious, heal me, show me mercy, God. It doesn't matter what other causes there may or may not be. It doesn't mean that he has to call these workers of evil workers of good because they are unwittingly doing God's will. In fact, that is a hallmark of a sinful mind to call evil good and good evil. But he recognizes the waves and the breakers that wash over him, as Psalm 42 says, are the Lord's. As we even sung, the, the wave that causes us to land on the rock of ages to the shore of Christ is the Lord's wave. Ultimately, suffering saints wait on God. They bet it all on him. Doesn't mean he doesn't speak in his own defense if he's being slandered. It, it doesn't mean that he doesn't seek uh, medical attention if he's ill, but it does mean that however long this lasts, it's exactly, exactly as long as God wants. Suffering saints wait on God as long as he wants. And praise God, there is more to this psalm because we could walk away with the impression that God is petty or he's capricious, that he even maybe takes delight in the power trip. God doesn't need a power trip. He doesn't grow or lose power. He doesn't fluctuate in his power and his sovereignty. He is power. So if he is exercising that authority in a way that is difficult to us, it has to be for some reason. It's not just as long as he wants on a whim. God has a plan. God has a purpose. And we see a second facet to this answer. How long do suffering saints wait on God? Well, again, it's not a timestamp. It's not X amount of weeks or this many years or this many eons even. Suffering saints wait on God in line with his wisdom. As long as God wants, but it's not just whatever he happens to want in that moment. It's according to a plan. Suffering saints wait on God in line with his wisdom. Verses 4 and following say, turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me. For the sake of your steadfast love. What would be God's motive in delivering David in this moment? Well, it would be because of who he is. And who he is as a loving God has covenanted himself, has taken a partnership to himself with a people. He has chosen first God's people, Israel, from Abraham's offspring, And then specifically, he has made a covenant with King David. He said, you will never lack a descendant of yours on the throne of Israel. You will always eternally have a descendant on the throne. You've committed yourself to me, God. And you are not a God who goes back on his word. Yes, he knows that he can't know the answer in any definite, specific way how long. But he knows that however long God wants this to last... It's for God's own purposes. And that when God delivers, it will be an amazing display of his love. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Why will it be an amazing display of God's love? What will be different about God's love if he delivers David from death? 
Verse 5, it says, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? It almost sounds like he's bartering with God, doesn't it? Like, hey, God, you, you don't need anything or anybody. You've been just fine. Before you created the world, you were perfectly satisfied in and of yourself. But, hey, if I die, who's going to praise you? Doesn't that sound silly? Doesn't it sound so backwards? Doesn't it sound like he has the complete wrong perspective of God? We don't add anything to God's glory when we glorify him. But we do ascribe glory to him, and it changes not God, but us. However, God's reputation is on the line because of the decision he's made. I have chosen you, David. I have called you mine. This is what happened with Israel in the wilderness. God brings them out in an amazing display of mercy and judgment into this wilderness where they want to turn their backs on him and go back to their slavery. Sin hasn't changed much, has it? And Moses goes and prays for the people and goes, what will all the other nations think, God, if you let these people die out here? Well, they might think if they were thinking, well, God is a just God and there is no one righteous, no, not one. These are truths that we believe and sing and pray. But God had already expressed his plan and his purpose to Abraham's offspring, to the people of Israel. He had said, I'm going to bring them out in an amazing display so that they might worship me on this mountain. And they're not yet worshiping. And so God's plan's not yet done. Christian, take heart in this, that if you're suffering like David was suffering, you may not know every step of the way, but everything that God has promised for his people if you are one of them, applies to you. And if he has promised that you will see him, that you will know him, that you'll be satisfied in him, that you'll be delivered, then you will be delivered. Not because of who you are and not immediately, not without great pain and trial and burden and struggle, but in line with God's wisdom. He goes on, look, who's going to praise you if I'm in the grave? I am weary with my moaning. I'm not singing. I'm stuttering. I'm grieving. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. This is not at all praise, is it? Well, it might be. Remember? If this is where David was and he decided to turn around and write a song about it so that all God's people could praise, there can be glory in grief and there can be worship in waiting. And yet, if he ultimately is just on his way to a grave, then he's got a problem. We'll need to think more about that. But we, we read here that suffering saints wait on God in line with his wisdom. I say wisdom because God doesn't need praise, and God's steadfast love can be judgment on those who are unfaithful. But in his great wisdom, he has purpose to bring his chosen people through great trials unto deliverance for his name's sake. He loves us enough not to let us enjoy anything more than we enjoy him because we wouldn't have enough enjoyment. It would fluctuate. It would leave. But God won't. He doesn't gain anything in himself 
by bringing us to worship him. But we stand to gain everything if God lets us see him in the light of day. And that's exactly where David knows he's going to wind up. Suffering saints wait on God in line with his wisdom. And another facet to this answer, suffering saints wait on God for a little while. A little while. Doesn't that sound belittling? If you're in pain right now, someone tells you, it's just just a little while. How long is a little while? This is the closest thing we get to a temporal answer. And and honestly, it's really vague, isn't it? If you've ever driven kids anywhere for any length of time. How long? Well, you could give them the exact answer that your GPS says, and it won't be satisfying, will it? Because what they want is not really to know how long it's going to be. What they want is for it to be over. When you're suffering, how much would it help you to know the end date? Really, how much would it lift your burden if you knew that the burden was only going to last a little while? Well, if you know what the end is going to look like, then a little while is just fine. And a little while can be anything. Because 10,000 years into eternity, however long, however deep, however difficult you're suffering, it's a little while. Are you going to care 100 years from now how much you hurt right now? He says, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. It is a fragrant offering to him. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Now, when God shows up for David, it's going to be sudden. It's going to be definite. The burden will be gone. And it's only going to be in a little while. Suffering saints wait on God for a little while. He has this confidence because of God's faithfulness that he just spoke about. Your steadfast love, God. Your own name's sake. Your own desire to bring your people to praise you because of your deliverance extends to me. I know that I'm going to be delivered. Some people read this and go, well, he must have written like the first couple of stanzas and then got a word from the Lord. Maybe. I don't know. They don't know either. Sometimes we say things about the Bible that no one can know. Or maybe this was meant to be in the context of worship and, you know, it's kind of like pause during this, you know, right before this last chorus and then offer a sacrifice. And that's how you can sing the last chorus is because you offered a sacrifice. Maybe we don't really have a manual of how this song was supposed to be sung. But we do know that God accepts those who come to him in humility. We do know that God accepts the prayer of the brokenhearted. We do know that King David, yes, through his victories, but even more so through his defeats, became a humble and contrite and broken man before the Lord. We do know that deliverance will be so satisfying 
that everything that came before will feel like a little while. Then David died. He got deliverance. His problem went away. These workers of evil departed from him. He ends his days in relative peace, according to the Bible. And then he goes to Sheol, where he can't give God praise. We think about this idea of going to the grave and it being this shadowy place and being this sub-optimal way of living. And then we look at the New Testament picture of going to be in the presence of the Lord. And we attend Christian funerals and, and, and feel that abundance of hope. And we could say that this is a matter of progressive revelation, that, that David just didn't know as much as we know now. But it's not about the progress of God's revelation. It's about the progress of God's redemption. It's that David did go to a grave, that David did go to a dark and shadowy place where there is no praise of God. And then someone else showed up. He might have prayed this prayer how long while he waited in the darkness. He might have cried out, God, you delivered me from my earthly foes. When will you deliver me from this? There is a greater David. There is another suffering saint. All of the Psalms are meant to make us think about David's life and as the king of Israel, the life of God's people and how they're intertwined and how his life even resembles and represents their lives so that we could look to our king. So that we could see, yes, a wise one, as Psalm 1 says, a blessed one who bears fruit, but also a conquering king, as Psalm 2 says, who will rule the nations, but also, as Psalm 3 and Psalm 6 and so many others, a suffering saint on the run waiting for God's deliverance. And as those who come here under a cross with eyes open, who've prayed, Spirit, help us see Jesus, we cannot help but think of another suffering saint. That Jesus waited thousands of years to take on flesh and redeem. That Jesus waited about 30 years of brokenness to start performing miracles, to start teaching truth, to start ministering to God's people. That Jesus waited hours for his torn flesh to rest, for his heavy lungs to cease. But Jesus waited over the weekend just a little while, that he could join David and all God's faithful people in the grave and lead them out, a host of captives, a joyful band of those who have been captured by God's grace, trophies of Jesus's victory to be in the presence of the Lord where everyone gives him praise where everyone remembers his good deeds, where the sake of his steadfast love has found its purpose. Suffering saints wait on God for a little while because the deliverance that comes from Jesus 
makes everything else feel light and momentary, as Paul said. What do we do then? What are you waiting for? Are you waiting for your name to be vindicated and your reputation to be restored? You will wait as long as God wants. There is no one better for you to spend your time imploring than him. Yes, answer questions. Yes, seek the truth. Yes, rebuke sin. And then bow the knee because God is the only one who causes this delay ultimately. In line with his own wisdom, his own purpose to forge souls, to increase joy capacities, to spread the gospel to those who haven't heard it, to build a platform for praise. And it's just for a little while because when Jesus comes, as Revelation says, those who have persecuted you and slandered you and said you're not God's people will fall at your feet and declare that God has loved you. Maybe you're waiting. Maybe you're waiting for the one you love, for the friend who has wandered away, for the child that you're trying to raise well to grow, to stop quit hurting you, to quit hurting others, to turn back from this grievous sin, whatever it may be. You're asking how long? You will wait as long as God wants. You will wait in line with his wisdom. He has not zapped you into glory just yet. He has not perfectly and completely sanctified you in this life. And he hasn't done it for anyone else you know. For a reason, he delays, in part, as Peter wrote, so that none may perish, but all may be saved. He has a people purchased in blood, and some of them haven't even been born yet. So he's going to keep this evil world spinning and keep these broken vessels going until he gets every last one of them. His steadfast love will fulfill its purpose. He will get praise for himself. And when Jesus returns, it will just feel like a little while. What can we do? Well, if I could just open up the rest of this book and let us think about it for a moment, I think I would give uh, just three encouragements, admonitions to you. First, we, we wonder at Christ's example. We read Psalms like Psalm 6 and we see Jesus trusting his father, saying, Lord, if you're willing, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. We see him at the graveside with his friend asking, how long will I endure this evil world where people go from bad to worse into a grave? And we see him take a quick weekend trip to Sheol and come back with his spoils. We wonder at Christ's example. And we wait on others as Christ's servants, like we're waiting tables. Part of Jesus' example was that he took up a towel and a basin and he knelt down to serve. Even the one who would betray him, his close 
friend. We wait on others. I think so often, and it's, uh, I grew up in a kind of church culture where it was cool to have a life verse. I don't know that I have a life verse, but I have three verses that I think about a lot. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, describes this bleak picture that those who don't believe in the gospel are blinded by the God of this world, Satan, so that they can't see the glory of this crucified king. And then verse 6 says, God has shown in our hearts, he's done a creative, miraculous work that we would see God's glory in this crucified king. And then verse 5 says, so what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for his sake. You can keep serving anybody however long God calls you to if you're doing it for Christ's sake because his worth will not be exhausted. Because his goodness as a king, as a master, as a captain, and a commander will never, ever run out. We can wait on others as Christ's servants. And in the end, it will only feel like a little while when he says, well done. Well done. And finally, we watch for Christ's return. We watch for Christ's return. James 5 paints this beautiful picture of waiting for the Lord to return, of a farmer who patiently sows. He he doesn't see immediately any of the fruit of what he's doing. In fact, he actually loses the one thing he can see, which is the seed. He goes from having this tiny little bit of sight to absolutely nothing until God does his work, until the rains come and things take root and bloom and grow. Think of 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. As Paul continues to reflect on his ministry, he's sharing the gospel to a bunch of blind, spiritually oppressed and enslaved people. And unless God works a miracle, all of his work will be for nothing. And he says, and we are weak. We have this treasure in jars of clay so that people might see that the surpassing glory does not belong to us, but to God. Why does God wait? It's in line with his wisdom. We watch for Christ's return, carrying on patiently, prayerfully, giving him praise in what feels like a living hell. Because when Christ's return, it will feel like just a little while. He says, behold, I am coming soon. And that one word soon has stretched about 2,000 years so far. But the now that will come after it will go on forever. So we wait. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are coming soon. The spirit in us groaning, feeling the weight of our own sin feeling the weight of the brokenness of this world, particular people and relationships and situations that are in our minds right now. The spirit and the bride say, come, Lord Jesus. Come soon. And until that time, equip your people. Send us out from this place on your mission to wait and to wait well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.